Christmas means God does what he wants. God does whatever he wants, and man, is he a planner. I mean, just, just think about the Christmas story for a moment. I mean, most new parents spend some time planning for the birth of their child, right? But it's usually like nine months, give or take. But God, in planning for the birth of his son, began even before the foundations of the world, all the way back in eternity past, getting everything just right. God is the ultimate planner. God does what he wants. What he wants is always good, and his good is our greatest delight. And in ways that are nearly unbelievable to me, we are a part of that plan. I mean, the plan of, of God that extends from all time and extends all the way into eternity future that you and I, before the creation of the world, God knew, if you know Jesus, God knew that you would be one of the ones he would rescue. It just blows your mind, doesn't it? Just think about that. Now, as I mentioned, we are in Romans 8, and we're going to get there, but we're also just two days away from this great celebration. And God is the ultimate planner. I mean, think, think about all the divine planning that went into the miraculous birth of Jesus. Before the creation of the world, God had a plan to bring glory to himself through the redemption of a people. God had a plan to bring redemption, to bring glory to himself through the redemption of a people, people who hadn't even been created yet. And when we say a people, right, that sounds so sort of vague and generic. Put your name in there. I mean, think of it, think of it in that way. Before the, before the creation of the world, God had a plan to bring glory to himself through the redemption of Nathan and Susie and Dan and Brian and Sarah and everyone who believes. Just, just think about that. And so he created this perfect world with you in mind, full well knowing that we would do everything within our power to destroy it, to destroy him, to destroy each other, and to destroy ourselves. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what sin is, right? A destruction of all the good that God has done for us out of our own selfishness and pride. Knowing the choices we would make, God created anyway. Because God does what he wants. And his plan will never falter. So God created and we rebelled. And there in the Garden of Eden, we couldn't stay there in rebellion against God. And, and so as, as God hands us our eviction notice, even there in that moment, he gives Adam and Eve this vague little tiny promise that someone someday, somehow, somewhere would crush that nasty serpent's head. And a lot happened between that day in the garden and the very first Christmas day, but God's plan kept moving forward. People like Abraham and Moses and David all pointed to someone yet to come. Isaiah and, and others predicted that he would come, a, a kind of sneak peek into God's plan. Isaiah, for example, said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
God is obviously very patient with his plan because it took 700 years for that virgin to get pregnant. But given the science of the matter, right? It's a wonder it happened at all. And then if we we get to that that actual story that, that God chose Mary, and Mary and Joseph, right, they couldn't just be anybody. They had to be people in the line of King David, part of, of his family line. And, and even if you think about all the things that went into this, you know, Mary had to have the kind of faith, right, that she would actually believe the unbelievable things that the angel told her. And Joe had to be the kind of man that, with the kind of, of faith that he would stick by his seemingly knocked up fiance. I mean, that's, a, that's a hard pair to find, isn't it? And even just think of the little details that it went into it. I mean, all the prophecies said that, that this Messiah would, would begin, would, would come first in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem. So Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at that day, in need of a little extra tax revenue, decided to call a census, forcing Mary and Joseph into that town. God has a way of doing what he wants and there were, there were no worshipers for the birth of Jesus. And so God sent shepherds, right, to even, even to show us that this Messiah comes for the lowest of the low, the, the poorest outcast imaginable, even shepherds. And then sometime later, right, God sent wise men or foreign kings to, to also worship, to show us that, that this Messiah comes also for the rich, also for the educated, also for the foreigner. And those gifts they brought They would come in quite handy when this holy family had to flee for Egypt for their own lives. All these little details that God was working out to bring glory to himself through the redemption of his people. Mary and Joseph, I mean, they didn't have any idea how it was all going to work out. But they trusted in God. And we've so over-sentimentalized and, and romanticized the story that we forget the, the struggle that this must have been. The pain and agony in this strange moment. But they trusted him. Because they knew that God does what he wants. And what he wants is always good. All to bring about glory to himself through the redemption of a people. And so we, we celebrate Christmas and we think, boy, wasn't God smart, right? I mean, what a planner. Way to go, God. And then we get back to our lives as if nothing actually happened. I mean, besides, it was all 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? But listen, God's plan isn't finished yet. I mean, if, if that was the end of his plan, kind of lame, right? Just, just look at ourselves. Look at our world. It, it, it couldn't be it yet. Don't think for any moment that God is less organized in the details of our lives than he was with Mary and Joseph. With the same care and precision and grace that God chose Mary and Joseph and brought them to Bethlehem and kept them safe, he uses that same care and precision and grace in our lives. God is still working out his plan to bring glory to himself through the redemption of you. Sometimes I like to, to picture God's plan. If you're, if you're thinking about it, maybe you're a little bit more of a visual person here. As a timeline, I'm going to write God's plan at the top here. 
And think of it as a timeline, the, the entire history of everything. Okay? And back this way is eternity past. And so it just keeps going on and on forever and ever. I mean, God has always been. And so this line never ends. And the same thing is true in this direction, that this line, it just keeps going and going and going, that this is the history of everything, God's entire plan. And somewhere on this line, right, the, the climax of his plan was this, this baby, right, who lived and died and rose again. We know that that's the climax of his plan. It's not the conclusion of his plan, because he's going to come again, but it's the climax. And what is so staggering to me, what we so often forget, is that we are a part of this same timeline. You and I, and we, we are very much a part of what God is doing in our world. I'm going to write you on there. If you're taking notes, write your name. Because it's the, before the very beginning of the world, God had you in mind. It's a remarkable thing to think about, isn't it? It's just staggering. It just blows me away to even begin to, to ponder such a thing. And so now we look at Romans 8. Because Romans 8 peels back the, the curtain uh, on this mystery, showing us the story behind the story of Christmas, but also the story behind the story of you. I mean, do you want to know what God is doing with your life? Where he's taking you, the role that you play on his divine timeline. It's all right here. Paul spells it out for us. And as we look together at this text, these three verses, we see three things. God does what he wants. What he wants is always good, and his good is our greatest delight. God does what he wants. And do you know what he wants? You. To glorify himself through you, to love you and care for you, and to give you what you truly need as you seek to follow him, and he will do whatever it takes to get us there. Let's begin reading in Romans 8, verse 28. Here's what Paul says as he continues his argument. He says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, these last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, if you haven't, that's okay. We'll try to catch you up. But these last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about the groaning in our lives and in our world that, that we ourselves, Paul said, we groan and our world, even creation itself groans and that the Holy Spirit within, within us groans as well, that we are all groaning, longing for this redemption. But this groaning now, Paul is saying, is moving us in a particular direction, that, that, we're, that we're headed somewhere. And last week, if you recall, Paul said that we don't know how to pray or what to pray for as we ought. Remember that? But this, he says, we do know. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, and so the Spirit himself, right, he intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words, always in line with, the, with, with the, the will of God. And if that's true, then Paul can say, and this we know, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I mean, it's a common verse for many of us. 
but is often so misunderstood. I mean, this, this promise here, right? Right away, Paul says, this isn't some sort of blanket statement that everything just sort of works out, right? I mean, this isn't, you know, the Christian version of karma. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul makes it very clear that this is a promise made to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things don't necessarily work out for good for everyone. But for those who believe, we can hold on to this. And we could say with confidence that, that God is at work in your life. And we know that. that. That no matter what, if that describes you, if you are, as Paul has said, if you have been adopted as sons and daughters because of Jesus, then God is absolutely at work in your life. Not just, not just back then, right? Not even just when you gave your life to Jesus, but he is at work now in us. And he even says in all things. I love that Paul says that, right? All things. Not just big things. Not just when we want him to be at work in certain things. Not in the things that we think are particularly spiritual, but Paul says in all things. And let me let you in a little secret. I looked, I looked in the, at the, the Greek language today, or this week, and to try to figure, what is all things mean? You want to know what all things means? It means all things. That's it. Okay? There's, there's no way to, like, organize it or explain it any other. All things. Every single thing. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God is at work. Now, we all know how to make God laugh, don't we? A common cliche. How do you make God laugh? Tell him your, yeah, make plans. You tell him your plans, right? We, we, often, we often say, because our plans don't always line up with his, do they? And we all make plans, every one of us. I mean, students, some of you are, are making plans. You think about colleges, and you think about, about career choices and where you're headed. But every one of us goes through life with tightly held plans. And very often our plans don't exactly work out exactly as we had planned, do they? And sometimes, truthfully, really terrible things interrupt our plans, don't they? I'm sure most of us have experienced that at times. Tragic things, horrible things. And yet Paul is saying here, God in his word is saying to us, that there is nothing that comes into your life that surprises God. That there's nothing, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's nothing that comes into your life that will prevent him from fulfilling his ultimate purpose for you. That there is nothing you can experience that he won't use for good somehow, in some way, in your life. Nothing. God does what he wants. And what he wants is always good. This might actually be the hardest part of the whole deal right here. Because I'm guessing a lot of us would probably say pretty easily, yeah, God does what he wants, right? I mean, his plans are far beyond ours. God is always doing what, we could say that probably fairly easy. But where it gets really hard is, is talking about his plans for me. Okay, so God does what he wants, but is, are the things that he's working, are they really for my good? 
But that's what he says in verse 28, isn't it? Okay, so fine. Yeah, okay, it all works out together for good. But what does that mean? We kind of need to define what good is, don't we? Because terrible things happen, don't they? Even to those who love God, awful, horrible, tragic, painful things, things in which we can't possibly see any good. Christians are not immune from suffering, are we? In fact, even the the first people that Paul is writing to here are are people who are suffering for their faith, right? And and throughout the history of the church and even in, in lots of places around our world today, Christians are being persecuted for following Jesus. So what is this good that Paul's talking about? And really, because we don't understand the good here, and because we tend to to trivialize the pain of others, we Christians, well-meaning as we may be, we use verses like this like a hand grenade. We rip it out of context, pull the pen, chuck it into the crowded hospital room and scurry on before the carnage can, can get us dirty. Don't we? We think that verses like these give us the right to offer trite answers and simple solutions to hurting people when the first thing God tells us to do with hurting people is to weep with them. If we, if we haven't wept with them, then don't throw verses at them. We've got to begin by, by grieving, by, by understanding the, the hurt that people experience. I mean, as a pastor, I, I hear these stories from time to time uh, a, a while back. I remember Kelly and I were, were meeting with this couple. They'd recently miscarried. Um, and, and the wife w- was sharing with us how someone close in her family, um, in her relationships, um, we kept, kept telling her, well, you just got to see the bigger picture and you, you got to trust God. And this woman was seeing the bigger picture and she was trusting God. And she just looked at me and I could see the, I could see the pain in her eyes and she said, can I just be sad for a while? Yes. Verses like these cannot be used as as simple hand grenades in the the midst of people's pain. When we do, we're offering just trite answers. We're trivializing their pain. And we're even trivializing the good that Paul is talking about here. I mean, we make it so trite and simple. I mean, really, if we're going to talk about this verse, there's a cost to us to understanding this verse. Because in so many ways, we, we would prefer, I think, to just rip it out of context, and that way we can define good as whatever we want it to be, you know? And it, it does become just the Christian version of karma or some, some fatalistic optimism that all things just work out and we control what's good and yay, it's all going to be fine. But there's a cost to understanding this verse. But if we don't, we can hurt others with it and we can hurt ourselves with it. Because nowhere here is the good that Paul is talking about. It's not our comfort. It's not our ease or satisfaction or good health. He doesn't say that that the good is all going to make sense soon enough, so just suck it up. He doesn't say that we'll understand it or like it or that it will ever be easy. But he does say that it'll be good. And God defines what good is. And if God is going to define our good, we have got to give up our illusion of control. 
And in the verses that follow here, Paul shows us what good is. And really, I think he gives us both the definition of of the good that God is, is bringing us toward, as well as the proof of his goodness and the way he continues to work out his plan for us. Because God does what he wants. What he wants is always good, and his good is our greatest delight. God's greatest good for you. The plan he's had for you from the very beginning, the plan he's been working on since way back before he put the stars in their place, the the plan that was on his mind as Jesus lay in the manger and hung on the cross. What he wants for you more than anything is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what Paul says, right? That is his highest good for us. And our greatest delight. Verse verse 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's kind of a a big theological word. It just means chosen beforehand. Okay? Predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined or chose, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's saying that God knew you before the world began. And he chose you, and he called you, and he justified you, and he glorified you. I mean, that, that if anything at all, is, is proof of God's goodness in our lives, of working out his plan from eternity past to eternity future, that God has done those things already for us. But it's not just the proof of God's goodness. It's the definition. It's the picture of the good in which he's bringing us towards. Now, I know some of us, when we hear words like predestination, we start freaking out, okay? Just calm down a little bit. Some of I mean, we're thinking, well, what about, what about free will? And what about, does that mean, you know, God doesn't choose? Every, just, just relax, relax. Take deep breaths, Okay. If you're not thinking about those things, you know, good for you, honestly. Um, some, some of us get sort of wrapped up in these theological categories that we're never fully going to be able to grasp. But I think if you're sort of worried about those things, you know what I think Paul would say to us at this moment? I think you just say, you just worry too much. I mean, just, just for a moment, for one minute, just bask in the glory of what God has done for you across all eternity. Yeah, sure, we don't understand it. We don't know all the details of it. But wow, for you, God has done all of this. And if that's true, I mean, what what is he going to do in the small details? This little blip in which we live on this earth. His work for you. Let's kind of explain these words a little bit. Paul says his work for you goes back into eternity and forward into eternity. He says that he knew you somehow way back here. And really the idea of, of know there, it's, it's not simply knew you cognitively because he's God, but it's kind of this knowing and, and loving. Uh, that's how it's used in the Old Testament, that God, he knew you and he loved you before any of this had actually ever even happened. He knew you and he loved you and he chose you, Paul says. Chose, predestined, 
Not based on anything you've done or would do or could do, not based on any good within you, but simply out of his grace and mercy and love. He said, Nathan is gonna be one of mine. Yeah, but what about free will? Just relax about the whole free will thing, okay? I mean, again, these, these are tensions that God's sovereignty and our free will are mysteries that we only begin to fathom. And when we lose the tension on either side of it, that's when we really get in trouble. When we pretend to have these things figured out, that's where the danger lies. That somehow, mysteriously, God is at work throughout eternity bringing us to himself. You deserved nothing from him. And he picked you anyway. And he called you, Paul says. That's more the, the time when you gave your life to Jesus. You, you mysteriously, again, in ways we don't understand, you heard his call and you gave your life to him. You confessed your sins, you turned from your sins. And, and at that moment, you became a, a believer in Jesus. And, and some, of you, some of you aren't there yet, right? Um, you're, you're not a believer. You haven't placed your trust in Jesus. Maybe, maybe if you're not there yet, maybe you hear his voice calling you still. Again, it's full of mystery. I mean, how long are you going to fight against it? I mean, why not, why not give your life to Jesus? And, and in that moment, as, as, we, as we confess, as we give our life, as we put our faith in Jesus, Paul says that we're justified. It's another big theological word. Simply means basically declared right, declared holy, declared just. It's, it's that Jesus, because of his death on our behalf, that Jesus took all of our sins, all of our bad upon himself, and he gave us all of his good, and he gave it to us. And so that when our Father in heaven looks down on us, if you're a follower of Jesus, he sees us as good and perfect and lovely and holy as his natural-born son. I mean, that's what we've talked about with adoption, right, just a few weeks ago. You've been justified and then Paul says that you've been glorified. Now that's a little bit harder, right? Because I don't feel very glorified, right? But I love that he uses the past tense there because for Paul, it's as good as done. We may still feel that tension. We're not there yet, right? And yet it's as good as done. So I think in many ways what Paul is doing here, he's kind of given us this, this hope, this picture, but also this, this, this process of becoming like Jesus. So put glory over here. And oftentimes we talk about that, that process or kind of the shades of glory that we go through in our lives as sanctification, is becoming more and more like Jesus. And I realize this is complicated stuff, right? This is, this is some, some theological truths that are hard to understand but so beautiful to grasp. I mean, just for a moment, breathe in deeply the grace of a God who loves you like this. And if this is true, right, all the way in the past and all the way into the, to the future, this, this is, I think, what Paul is getting at. If these things are true, then why do we freak out so much right here? Think about what God has done already for you and what he promises to continue doing in you and for you. I mean, this, this is the ultimate proof of God's goodness in our lives. If you, if you ever doubt, if you struggle with it, and of course we do, remember these words. 
That you are now, you are perfectly secure, eternally safe, fully satisfied, given full significance as sons and daughters. This is proof of God's goodness in your life. Just look at what he's been up to. And I know we all come with all kinds of really brutal circumstances, many of us anyway. Things that we carry in, pains that we're, we're experiencing even now, temptations that we're dealing with that just won't quit, or difficult family, all these kinds of things. And Paul is not, and this book never belittles our pain. But he is showing us that God has always been at work. And he will always be at work. And that we can breathe that in even in the midst of the scariness of life. I mean, if you're, if you're struggling with something, you know, dealing with, with trusting God in these moments, I would encourage you, write out these five words. That God knew me, God chose me, God justified me, called me, I reverse those two, and glorified me. It's amazing, even in a scary world. I mean, just realize that God has been thinking about you, loving you, scheming for your very best before the stars even began to shine. And he will be thinking about you by name, loving you, scheming for your very best, long after the sun has burned out. You have been known and loved. Maybe we should trust him. And the good that he's moving us towards, it may not be the immediate good we'd hoped for. Oftentimes we hope for things like comfort or relief or ease or healing or peace or all these kinds of really important things. It may not be that, but he is moving us toward the eternal good in which we find our greatest delight, towards that glory. What is God's big goal for you? Look again at verse 29, right in the middle there. His big goal is that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God wants nothing more intensely for you than he wants you to be conformed, me to be conformed to the image of his son. God's highest goal for us is that we would be like Jesus, to be like our big brother. I mean, that, that's the idea of what, what Paul is saying there in that context, so that God can have a really big family. A plan to glorify himself through the redemption of his people. God wants this good for us more than anything else that we can possibly imagine because ultimately it's what we were created for. And ultimately he knows that all these other things, as important as they are in our lives, in the moment, that this, only this, because it's what we were created for, is what is going to bring us ultimate delight and satisfaction. This is what he wants. It's what he's always wanted for you. And if you're his, he will stop at nothing to achieve it. And he will allow into our lives whatever it takes to get us there. But what he wants is always good. And his good is our greatest delight. But it's not easy, is it? Of course it's not easy, right? And I love what C.S. Lewis said. He wrote this in his, his personal journal after his wife died of cancer. He said, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? 
have they never been to a dentist? I mean, I love that comparison. I love it for two reasons. One, because I hate going to the dentist, okay? Sorry if we have any dentists here. I hate it, okay? Uh, but for two, I think he's dead on, right? Because we go to the dentist, we know that the dentist is good. He has our best interest at heart, right? He's trying to, to make things better. He's trying to, to accomplish a really important goal in our lives. And yet, for me at least, I'm, I'm still scared when I go to the dentist. I don't like it. It hurts. And if God is a little bit like that, right? Always working for our good, but sometimes it hurts along the way. How do we trust the God who does what he wants? Well, three things, I think. Just quickly here. As hard as it sometimes is, we have to choose to rest in the greatness of God's sovereignty. Choose to rest in the greatness of his sovereignty. As difficult as it is, as hard as it is, to even begin to fathom, remind yourself that in all things, big and small, good and bad, God will accomplish his goal for you, no matter what. And his goal for you is better than anything we could even imagine. That there is purpose in everything we experience. And God is moving us further along in his plan, on his timeline toward the destination in which he wants to bring us, both here and in eternity. I don't pretend to understand all the details, neither should we, right? Of how God does this. And yet we believe that God is up to something. No matter what, God will do what he came to do in your life. And it's only when we believe that, I mean, really deeply believe, only then is it even possible to be able to give thanks in all circumstances, right? Or to count it all joy when we face trials of all different kinds. God does what he wants, which can be a really scary phrase. But if you trust him, it's a a phrase of incredible rest and peace and joy and delight. Rest in his sovereignty. Second, make every effort to go where he is taking you. His goal is that you'd be like Jesus. Well, is that our goal? Above everything else. Wait a second, Nathan. Didn't, didn't you just say that God is, is doing in us, you know, his plan no matter, no matter what? Well, yeah. But it's not without us. Again, God's sovereignty and our free will are completely mysterious, but God makes it clear that we have a massive role to play. That's why Paul says elsewhere that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us already to be able to do that. And so you've got to ask yourself, I've got to ask myself, am I being conformed to the image of Christ? If that's the goal, do I see that in my life? Am I becoming who I already am in Jesus? Do you seek him daily? Right? In, in his word or in prayer, remember the context of this passage is, is prayer, right? That, that when we pray, we don't know what to pray. The Spirit prays for us and with us. And all things work together for good for those who love God. Do we do that? Do do you see his hand in your life even when it hurts? Do you watch for it? Do you look to see what God is teaching us? Finally, let your delight begin now. I think the only way we can do this is to admit that you're not in control 
and be kind of relieved, right? I mean, do you really want to be in control of the universe? Admit that you're not and rejoice in the one who is. The one who has a plan all the way from eternity. He has already, right here, he has already given us everything that we need. You don't have to wait to the next life to be able to take delight in this incredible truth of where God is taking us. Again, I know how scary our world is, how many tragedies we experience, how we weep together over so many things. We have faith in a God who does what he wants. He has a plan. And in the end, he wins. And in just two days, we we celebrate a momentous day on that planet, a day that would lead, right, to, to Jesus' brutal death for our sins and to his glorious resurrection. But our big brother, in order to do this, he had to suffer in order to get us there. Why should we expect anything less along the way? But Jesus gladly took up his cross for our sake. The author of the Hebrews says, Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And friends, for the joy that is set before us, we can persevere, just like our big brother did. This doesn't stop the groaning. Not in the least. Paul has made it abundantly clear that we will groan until the day we die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. We will groan, our world will groan, and God himself, his spirit living within us, will groan with us. But we have hope that our groans are not in vain. That God is moving us towards something great, something wonderful, something we can't even begin to imagine, something that we can experience now as we trust in him and that we anticipate for all eternity. We are moving closer to a world in which the groaning will be no more. Our greatest delight awaits and we trust in him to bring us there. Our God does what he wants. What he wants is always good. And his good is our greatest delight.